Hello, and welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by AJC. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines and help you understand what it all means for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm Sefi Kogan. And I'm Manya Brashear-Pashman. So, Manya, you had a pretty interesting interview this week, huh? I did, Sefi. I interviewed Emily Tampkin, the author of a book called The Influence of Soros, about the rise of conspiracy theories, uh, anti-Semitic and otherwise, uh, involving Jewish billionaire and philanthropist George Soros, which has just recently raised some uh, controversy, especially in Chicago, where a columnist wrote about George Soros and raised a lot of alarm bells. Um, so we di- we discuss uh, just what the fine line is between anti-Semitism and just fair critique of Soros. Sefi, how about you? I'm excited to listen to that. It sounds like a, a really interesting deep dive into a complicated topic. And then our listeners can stick around afterwards when we had Dr. Laura Shaw Frank, the director of AJC's Contemporary Jewish Life Department, join us for Shabbat Table Talk. And now, let's hit the show. Jewish billionaire, philanthropist, and megadonor George Soros has long been the villain of conspiracy theories. He's also been a target of politicians and pundits on the right who resent his fierce opposition to George W. Bush and Donald Trump. They also object to his philanthropy support of liberal causes, support most clearly defined by his mega-donations. Earlier this month, the Open Society Foundations, the philanthropic group founded by Mr. Soros, announced it would invest $150 million in grants for black-led racial justice groups and another $70 million toward local grants for criminal justice reform. The announcement came amid protests in the streets and calls for racial justice sparked by the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis. Those protests, some of which have turned violent, have fueled critics to view those donations as efforts to foment anarchy and back government corruption. Emily Tampkin saw these critiques and conspiracy theories already building steam in 2016, which inspired her to research and write The Influence of Soros, her latest book. Emily, welcome. Thank you so much for having me on the show. So for our listeners, let's take a step back and start with who is George Soros? Um, not who the conspiracy theorists say he is, but who is he really? And what causes does he support and, and why? George Soros is a Hungarian-born American billionaire. He is very influential in three realms, the realm of finance, the realm of philanthropy, and the realm of politics. In finance, he was a very famous and successful hedge fund manager. He's maybe the most famous and successful currency speculator in the history of finance, And then, you know, in the 1970s, after making a lot of money, he decides to start giving away some of that money to the cause of what he calls open society. The title comes, the name open society comes from this book by Karl Popper, who was Soros's tutor at the London School of Economics. And basically the premise of open society and its enemies is that, and this is a gross oversimplification, but basically the premise is that, you know, neither you nor I can really know the truth. So what we're supposed to do is all of us together in a society come together and we discuss and we debate and we try to reach this most perfect understanding. And then in practice, that's meant giving students scholarships. It's meant setting up a university in Budapest. It's meant, you know, after the dissolution of the Eastern Bloc and Soviet Union, paying for internet for, you know, various government ministries and trying to connect people to information. He's also a big, an influential figure in 
politics beginning in 2004 in the United States. He decided that he really wanted George W. Bush out of office and and became a major political donor. So I think, you know, I want to be careful to make clear that the political spending is separate from open society. But because he's this major philanthropic and also major political donor, and because the political donations are not exclusively, but do tend to be for Democrats and liberal causes, I think that that colors the perception of some, not just on the right, but particularly some people on the right in the United States. So Soros is a Hungarian Jewish immigrant, right? Tell us more about his upbringing and how it informed his philanthropy and political activism. 1930 Hungary is the interwar period between World War I and World War II. Prior to World War I, Jews in the Hungarian part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire were more assimilated than many other Jews in Europe. They really saw themselves, many of them saw themselves as Hungarian, were part of the Hungarian National Project, were part of this like glittering Budapest life. World War I happens, Hungary is on the losing side. They lose a lot of their territory in the Treaty of Trianon, which is like the Austro-Hungarian version of the Treaty of Versailles. And for a variety of reasons, the Jews are scapegoated for this. So, you know, you have these, he's born into this world where you start having um, Jewish quotas, laws meant to persecute Jews. And this is, so even before World War II, his father has them change their name from Schwartz to Soros to seem less obviously Jewish in this increasingly hostile environment. His father had previously like escaped a prison camp in Siberia during World War I and made his way back to Hungary during the Russian uh, Civil War. So he knew something about survival. Um, World War II comes and there's, you know, there's Nazi occupation and there's the Arrow Cross, which is like the Hungarian variant. He sees his father as this great protective figure who helped other people. The father, um, Tividar Soros, procured both forged and borrowed documents so that the Soros family and friends and friends of friends could hide out as Christians um, during, during this time. But he also, he's persecuted for being Jewish. He then, after World War II is living under a, certainly not the same kind of persecution, but under a repressive and oppressive socialist regime. And I think that this does two things. One, it makes this concept of a society where we can all debate and discuss very attractive. And I also think that for him, because he was persecuted on the basis of his ethnicity, his religion, that inspired in him the understanding that it was important to try to help whatever group was caught under the wheel at a given moment. With this history and background in mind, is it anti-Semitic to criticize Mr. Soros and the causes he supports? I'm not saying that criticizing Soros is in and of itself anti-Semitic. I think he's done things that you can criticize. Part of the reason that I wrote this book is that it should be what he has actually done and the money that he's actually spent, not money that he has never spent and things he is never going to do. That, to me, is when it trips over into being anti-Semitic and conspiratorial. So why are these conspiracy theories about him, why are they gaining traction in certain places? I mean, they've been there since the early 90s. You have conspiracy theories about Soros in Hungary in the late 90s. Um, you have them in Slovakia when this authoritarian Nemechiar um, is trying to hold on to power and there is an effort to oust him and he blames Soros. You heard them in 2004 Uh, when he was sort of stepping into the political fray here in this country. They really pick up steam when Viktor Orban, who was at one point uh, the recipient of a Soros scholarship on which he went to Oxford, um, but he comes... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's one of those, one of the quirks of of this story. But he he comes back to power and 
he's sort of looking for a political opponent because, you know, he's he's completely defeated the opposition party or th- that had been in power and which is a little more like liberal leaning. The promises of Hungary's accession to the European Union have not been fully realized. There's some dissatisfaction. Who do you blame? So he doesn't want to boost an actual political opponent. He has this um, this political advisor by the name of Arthur Finkelstein, who is a New York Jewish Republican operative. And basically, um, Finkelstein and, and Orban and their team revisit this conspiracy theory about George Soros. And you start to you start to have Soros blamed. But the thing that really picks it up, I think, is the migration crisis in 2015. I spoke to a Slovak man who said, you cannot imagine for this part of the world a more cartoonish villain than George Soros because he's Hungarian, which plays differently in different parts of the region, right? So in some cases, it's because he, you know, in, in Hungary, it's like, well, you're a Hungarian, but you left. In Slovakia, it's like, well, Hungarian is an ethnic minority. So he lives in New York. He works in finance at a time when global finance is like looked on with a lot of suspicion throughout the world. He's worked in currency speculation, which is suspect to many people. And critically, he's Jewish, which, you know, and I don't want to make it sound to listeners like any one of these places are just like teeming with anti-Semitism, but there is a lot of prejudice toward Jewish people in certain parts of the world. Um, And Central Eastern Europe is one. I don't think that there's any way around that based on my experiences there and and just history and the political present. So wait, how does the migration crisis fuel the conspiracy and what does that have to do with George Soros? In 2015, you have the Syrian refugee crisis where there's an influx of migrants and asylum seekers coming to Europe and the perfect other as Balint Mayar, who is a sociologist who is in the government in between Orban's first and second time in power. The way he put it to me was you can attack, you know, a liberal elite, a philosopher, a but that's not the perfect other. That person is still from the same culture as you, from the same country. They speak the same language. The perfect other is a migrant, somebody who does not come from the same place, does not speak the same languages of a different culture, looks different. In 2015, all of a sudden, you have all of these others in Europe. You have tremendous fear among the population. You have a lack of understanding of what's going on. And you have politicians who see an opportunity in this. And Orban... Victor Orban was one. And he does it not just by bashing migrants, but by marrying the perfect boogeyman with the perfect other and saying that this perfect villain is the one who's responsible for bringing in this this perfect other. And I write in the book that, like, to me, this is just the most perfect form of anti-Semitism, right? Because you have this, a Jewish man orchestrating the influx of of a population to erode and try to ruin the roots of this country to which he could never really belong. And it preys on both, on on multiple forms of prejudice that are within the population. Right. So you describe the the anti-Soros push as the most perfect anti-Semitism. So you're saying it's the most perfect anti-Semitism because it actually doesn't target Kind of unpack that for us. Sure. The reason that I think that the idea of a Jewish person bringing in immigrants is the perfect anti-Semitism is because so much of anti-Semitism is about Jews perpetually being other. And this idea that Jews have more control than any one group of people could possibly have. So this idea of a Jewish person using his control and using his power and using pulling these strings to bring in something that would change the character or erode the nature or threaten the nature of a nation or of a country 
to me, this is deeply anti-Semitic because it plays on these twin tropes of Jewish puppeteer and orchestrator and Jewish person as other, someone who is not invested in the nation, the country, and in fact wants to see it hurt. Mm -hmm. In other words, you have also said that that by attacking Soros, by attacking Jews, white supremacists, for example, are really attacking much more. I mean, they're not just attacking Jews. They're attacking blacks. They're attacking immigrants. Yeah, this is a great point. And I'm so glad you brought this up because part of what is so dangerous about this is that, you know, yes, it is anti-Semitic. And I think that it is, you know, it, it does put Jewish people in danger. George Soros has received a pipe bomb. The Jewish Community Center, the Aurora Center in Budapest has been attacked by right-wing figures here in the United States. We had the, the shooting at the Tree of Life Synagogue, but it also serves to delegitimize the people whom Soros and his money are helping. So here in the United States, you have, oh, Soros um, is responsible for the Black Lives Matter protests and the claim that these protests are happening because of Soros. So this does two things. It's anti-Semitic, right? Because again, it assigns agency to a Jewish person that he doesn't have. But it also strips agency from the group of people who are actually coming to the streets because they have legitimate grievances, right? They are protesting police brutality and systemic violence against Black Americans. Do the protesters, do these movements realize, is there an awareness that there is this kind of thread of anti-Semitism being used against them? Is there an awareness? Is there an awareness? I think in some cases, yes. In some cases, no. It sort of takes groups by surprise, right? Like, of course, we're not put on by Soros. So I don't know that it's always fully... Appreciate, And I also think that because some of it comes from like these fringe websites and far right groups, there's a thought that it's not as central and serious as it is. But I think that we're in this moment where, yes, it's being talked about by fringe figures and, and you know, websites that you and I probably would not go on. But versions of this are also being said by the most powerful people in various countries. Right. So Trump in like in Trump in 2018 says that Soros could be behind the migrant caravans that are coming in. So I think at that point, it becomes clear that there is anti-Semitism at play, but maybe not for the migrants who are just trying to make it to, to the United States. So now there are a number of Jewish billionaire philanthropists out there of whom do support liberal democracy or, or causes that are relevant to that. So why George Soros? Why does that name keep coming up? I think he is unique in the extent to which he's been around the world trying to support this concept of open society and bringing people into the discussion who were maybe, uh, maybe those in power don't want to see brought into the discussion. And he also, like his, I mean, we talked about this at the beginning, but he is a unique personality in that he is an immigrant, he works in finance, he made his money currency speculating. Um, so there, there's a lot more than just, I don't, I don't want to make it sound like he's only being vilified because he's Jewish. But I, I think that is why the conspiracy theories work so well. But it's the breadth and scope of his work and also his complicated persona. So so I guess what is George Soros's legacy? He turns 90 mm -hmm. next month. You know, the title of your book is you know, all about his influence. What has his influence been and what will his legacy be? I think his influence is that he's shaped the financial system as we know it today. He's shaped political spending and giving as we know it today. But I, I do think that mostly he'll be remembered as a champion of this idea of open society and of uh, a civic and not ethnic understanding of what it means to belong to a society. 
And, you know, I think that I think that part of this moment that we're in where people are questioning billionaire philanthropy and the role that it plays, that's also part of the influence of Soros, because when you bring more people to the table and you empower more people to be a part of the conversation, some of those people will turn around. Well, some will turn around to be Viktor Orban, but some will turn around and say, "Okay, but why do you have the power to give me this money? Why is it not more equitably distributed in the first place? And I think that that's part of his his legacy, too. What are the legitimate criticisms of George Soros, I mean, that are out there that aren't necessarily anti-Semitic? Yeah, to me, I think a legitimate criticism is a criticism of, of something that he has actually done. So, for example, there are people who say, you know, by day he works at, in finance and his decisions in finance have uh, can have effects in these countries that he's ostensibly trying to support. So if you say, you know, I don't think that one person should have the kind of financial power to force Britain to pull out of the European exchange rate mechanism, that's a fair criticism. If you want to say, I don't think that there should be big money in politics and Soros is a big political spender, sure, that's a legitimate criticism. I, I think you could even say that, um, you know, if you're uncomfortable with Americans supporting election monitoring abroad, there, there are all sorts of ways that you can fairly criticize George Soros. I think it becomes anti-Semitic and conspiratorial when you start assigning him this agency that he's never taken. And, and when you do that, you strip it from people who actually did have agency in the process. Okay. Well, thank you so much for writing this book. It's, it's really interesting reading. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Now it's time for our closing segment, Shabbat Table Talk. And joining us at our Shabbat table this week is Dr. Laura Shaw Frank, the director of AJC's Contemporary Jewish Life Department. Laura, when you're talking with your family at your Shabbat table this weekend, what are you going to be talking about? Safi, Manya, this Shabbat, my family and I are going to talk about comfort. I know that doesn't really sound like a normal Shabbat table discussion topic, but let me explain. Um, so this Shabbat has a special name. It's actually called Shabbat Nachamu, the Shabbat of Comfort. And it celebrated the first Shabbat after Tisha B'Av, which is the ninth day of the Jewish month of Av, that actually falls today, ends tonight when the stars come out. And it's the saddest day of the Jewish year. It commemorates lots of tragedies that happened to the Jewish people throughout Jewish history. Probably most importantly, it commemorates the destruction of the Second Temple and the expulsion of Jews from the land of Israel by the Romans in 70 CE. And if you read the literature on this, the Roman siege was terrible. Jews were starved and burned and forced out of their beloved homeland. And they lost the temple that was really the anchor of their religious and communal life. And that changed Judaism forever. So traditionally, Jews commemorate the tragic nature of the day by fasting and by reading the book of Echa, Lamentations. It's a tough day. Fasting until nightfall is one thing in December and yet another in the middle of the summer when it's 90 degrees outside and night doesn't fall until 9 p.m. <laughs> um, so it feels a little strange, to be honest, to keep on mourning the destruction of the temple today, because even though the temple hasn't been rebuilt, we live in miraculous times because we have this strong and vibrant state of Israel. But Tisha B'Av actually really continues to resonate a lot for me. I'm a Jewish historian, and my kids make fun of me about this all the time. But for me, immersing myself in the Jewish people's past is actually a very spiritual act. It connects me to our people's history and reminds me who I am. It really gives me a sense of identity. So, and also, I think that continuing to mourn the destruction of the temple and the expulsion of the Jews from the land of Israel 
actually a special importance to the Jewish people today because it reminds us of our spiritual and historical connection to the land, which feels so important at a time when that connection is being called into question by many people, including some fellow Jews. So on Shabbat Nachamu, we're supposed to feel comforted after the terrible sadness of Tisha B'Av. We're supposed to go from despair to hope for a better future. So as I sit around my Shabbat table with my family, eating good food and enjoying everyone's company, I want to talk to them about how challenging it can be in America in 2020 to feel a sense of sadness about something that happened 2,000 years ago, and then a sense of comfort on behalf of the whole Jewish people. It's one thing to feel comforted about something that was close in time and hit us in a very personal way, but what does it mean to feel comfort in a historic and communal way? So I want to talk to my kids about what it means to see ourselves as part of a larger Jewish people, to truly feel our history and to truly work for our future together. Manya, how about you? What are you going to be talking about? And Laura, before I forget, congratulations on the debut of your newsletter, Shabbat Table, this week. I got a sneak peek and saw that it really offers some wonderful resources to inform listeners' own Shabbat Table conversations. So I encourage everyone to find it on AJC.org every Friday and subscribe so that it lands in your inbox. This Shabbat, we will talk about the power of silence. That is a tall order in a home with two kids, but silence can be a powerful tool. And that was proven earlier this week on Twitter. On Monday and Tuesday, AJC was one of just a few American Jewish organizations to walk out on Twitter to protest the company's lackadaisical response to an anti-Semitic tirade by Wiley, a British rapper. Among Wiley's comments, seen by his half-million Twitter fans, I don't care about Hitler, I care about black people. And there are two sets of people who nobody has really wanted to challenge, hashtag Jewish and hashtag KKK. So... Jewish organizations in the UK created their own hashtag, no safe space for Jew hate, and used it to announce a Twitter walkout for 48 hours to insist the matter be addressed. Now, I will say up front, I wasn't so sure silencing ourselves was a good way to drive home a point about hate speech. Others didn't want to give Wiley attention he didn't deserve, but it turns out the walkout worked. On Wednesday, Twitter enforced its policy on hate speech and permanently banned the godfather of grime. That's his nickname, by the way. Facebook and Instagram had removed Wiley's accounts a day earlier. Twitter has apologized that it didn't move faster and promised to review where their process went awry. Again, I'm not a big fan of silencing, and I believe in giving people a chance to ask for forgiveness and learn from their mistakes, no matter how huge. But then I heard Wiley interviewed on the British television network Sky TV. Yikes! Not remorseful at all. He screamed that those people are responsible for systemic racism, those people, then tells the interviewer not to wind him up. Sure, it's the interviewer's fault for giving him a chance to clarify and apologize. Wiley was not willing to apologize, even though he was given a medium to do so, and he was not willing to take down his tweets. So now he's lost that medium too. But he still has his music and his fans, and plenty of other underground echo chambers full of vitriol. That's a scary prospect. When we stay silent and let hate speech fester, it can yield dangerous results. So we stay vigilant. We speak up and we walk out like we did this week. But we don't walk away. And that's what we'll talk about at our Shabbat table. Sefi, what will you be talking about? As usual, we're recording this on Thursday. And I have to say, it's weird talking about my Shabbat table today. 
Solomon's temple in Jerusalem was destroyed on this day by the Babylonians in 587 BCE. The Romans destroyed the second temple in Jerusalem on Tisha B'Av in 70 CE, launching the diaspora that continues for half the Jewish people to this day. The Romans put down the Bar Kokhba revolt in 135 CE on this day, ending any prospect of Jewish sovereignty in our homeland for the next 2,000 years. England, France, and Spain expelled their Jewish communities on this day in 1290, 1306, and 1492, respectively. World War I began on this day in 1914. That led inexorably to World War II and the innumerable atrocities of the Holocaust, including the liquidation of the Warsaw Ghetto, which began on this day in 1942. Suffice to say, this is a heavy day. And since I'm fasting and observance of the occasion, I'm really not thinking about my Shabbat table. Instead, I'm meditating on a line from the liturgy. Oi mehayalanu. Alas, what tragedies have befallen us? This is not a typical Jewish sentiment. We're the people who joke that all our holidays are built around the premise they tried to kill us, they failed, let's eat. To be a Jew is to know that if we were to dwell on the bad things that have happened to our people, we'd be totally lost under the crushing weight of tragedy. So we persevere, we joke, we innovate, we build. But not today. Today is the day on the Jewish calendar when we really let ourselves feel it. And perhaps this year especially, that's healthy. More than half a million people are dead of the coronavirus, including people that each of us knew and loved. We are newly awakened to the massive racial inequities in our society and know that much work remains to build a more just America. We are reckoning with unrest in our streets. We are horrified by the plight of the Uyghurs in China. We are concerned about our rising sea levels and our ever more brittle ecosystems. And that's on top of the usual worries. Anti-Semitism is still rising. Israel is still under attack. Judaism gives us this important framework to really feel this tragedy today and then to get up and go on, to not get lost in a sea of despair and to do the critical work of repairing the world. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify, or learn more at ajc.org slash peopleofthepod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at ajc.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC. Our producer is Kukong Do. Our assistant producer is Atara Lakritz. And our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod.